0: Okay, we continue. Uh, yeah, this is a great song. Forget the things behind. Yeah. You know, e- Brother Lee told us, even when we sin and make a mistake and fail, we sh- of course, we should repent. Uh, and there's a little element of regret, but not only did he say don't look back, he said don't regret too much. <laughs> you may misunderstand that, but... Uh, Don't dwell in this thing. Don't dwell. Yes, we repent. We have to repent, of course. And there's going to be an element of regret, but don't regret too much. Don't dwell in this as as an element of regret. You have to realize that at least in his sovereignty, it was allowed. Mm -hmm. And you have to go on. And if you linger too much in this with the self-mortification and all this kind of stuff, This is not going to be healthy. You have to get up and you have to go on. And, uh, you know, the Lord knows and the Lord disciplines us in many different ways. But uh, we have to get up and go on with the Lord. And so we repent. We regret a little bit and then we move on. Forget about it. Okay, so we continue uh, one word on this matter of uh, uh, talking about enjoying the Lord. You know, I just. This is a great matter. We'll touch this a little bit in the outline more because, you know, in Nehemiah it says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And in Paul's writings in Philippians, he's going to talk a lot about joy and rejoicing. And he mentions that, I think, eight or nine or ten times. Something in that book. Uh, So the Christian life should be a life of joy. If our Christian life does not have the element of the joy of the Lord, there is a problem. There is a problem. Brother Nee ended his life in prison. And he was in a prison he was in prison for twenty years. And he ended at a prison farm. I think they moved him around different prisons, but he wound up in a prison farm. And at the last place of his prison farm, he was under very strict uh, rules that he was not allowed to have a Bible. I don't know if he was ever allowed to have a Bible. He wasn't allowed in the last place for sure. He was not allowed to write letters to others about God. He was not allowed to receive letters from others about God. He was not allowed to speak to other prisoners about God, although we know he did a little bit because he brought a couple to the Lord, at least one we know to the Lord. But that was, you know, again, uh, not something he was really allowed to do, but he did. But, and then he wasn't allowed even to move his lips when he was praying because they would even stop him from doing that. So he was really shut down in every outward fashion. Think about that. What could he do? He was not even allowed to move his lips. I'm sure he did maybe at night, but if they saw him, he would get in trouble. But he wrote that last letter to his niece, I think, and he said, I have maintained my joy. So I, I would say this. Uh, the the matter of joy and the joy of the Lord being our strength is a great, great matter in the Christian life. The kingdom of God is not uh, eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace peace and love. Is that right? And joy. Yeah, joy. Sorry. Joy in the Holy Spirit. So there, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of not only righteousness and peace, but of joy. If there's no joy in our Christian life, we have a problem. And we need to go to the Lord about this. What is going on? It's possible that we can become very uh, zealous and even religious, I guess. But there's no joy in the Christian life. There's a problem. There's a problem. And it doesn't always mean when we're joyful that we're exuberant outwardly and jumping and dancing and all this kind of stuff. Sometimes, but not always. Not always at all. Brother Nee was totally shut down and he maintained his joy. But joy is essentially an inward matter. It's an inward matter. It certainly relates to peace. It relates to uh, the presence of the Lord and with a lot of factors, but there's something there. And again, we have to check. If there's no joy in our Christian life, we have to go back to the Lord and find out what is going on. What is going on. Okay, now, let's continue with this matter of pursuing the Lord. where we ended off here, we ended up with uh, (coughs) pursuing Christ by knowing and loving him and then by yearning for him. Well, we're going to move pretty quick in this. This is just the story of the resurrection and the story of uh, Mary the Magdalene. Now, Mary the Magdalene, remember, she's the one who had seven demons cast out of her. And the Lord, you know, said, he who is forgiven much loves much. And uh, so this is a lot of truth to this. Paul was forgiven a lot. He considered himself chief of sinners. And Mary the Magdalene was seven demons. But anyway, she was a lover of the Lord. And we do see some principles here that we'll just very quickly go over, not spend too much time. But uh, (coughs) she was one who pursued the Lord and we need to pursue the Lord. And so let's look at her experience on that first day. So she, uh, on the first day of the week, that means the Lord's day. So the Lord, you know, the Sabbath is over. Sabbath is Saturday and the first day, you know, if you go, by the way, I always like little facts like this. You know, if you look at a European calendar or even the calendar they use in Russia, uh, they start their week on Monday, (laughs) but you know, we start our week on Sunday, right? A Lord's day. That is the Jewish way. We follow the Bible's way, which is the first day of the week is not Monday. It's the Lord's day or commonly called Sunday but uh the the whole world has gone away from this now now all the european calendars and even russia i'm a little surprised about russia because the orthodox church is so strong there but even they monday is the beginning of the week you know and and you have the thought well weekend it does say weekend so it ends on saturday and sunday right well no the biblical way is the week is over on saturday which is the sabbath and then the new day if you go to israel of course you know there The Sabbath is Saturday, then on Sunday everybody's back at work. You know, they're not intimidated by the way the world operates. They have their own schedule. But anyways, it's, it's the Lord's Day, first day of the week, and Mary Magdalene, of course, Christ had been crucified. He's in a tomb now, and she goes early, and it says that, she came early to the tomb while it was still dark. So in our pursuing and yearning for him, saints, we can never get away from this matter of early rising. This is Brother Nees in his 52 lessons, which he made toward the end of his ministry, not the beginning, the end of his ministry. 52 lessons. They're in the New Believer series by Watchman Nees, which if you've never read that series, you'll do very well to read it. It's great material. But he has this chapter on early rising. And he makes the point in that chapter that this may be the most important lesson a Christian can learn in their early life. And he even says it's more important than teaching them to gather on the Lord's day. That's a pretty strong statement. Uh, there is, uh, the Old Testament makes it very clear from Exodus chapter 16, I think, uh, that there is something very particular about the early morning time as far as God's dispensing his food to his people Of course, the manna you know in Exodus 16 it melted when the sun got hot so there is something very precious about the early morning in, to the world it may not make that much difference I think it makes a little bit of difference even in the world actually seems like if you study people People that rise up early, they tend to be a little bit more industrious than people that sleep late. Although Churchill was an exception, and I'm a great admirer of Churchill, but he would he would work until two or three in the morning and sleep until ten. He was a very unique fellow, so he broke all the molds. But generally speaking, even in the world, those who rise early. My grandfather was a Jew. He got saved before he died. But uh, before I got saved, he got saved. But my grandfather would always be up at five in the morning, and he told me uh, he was a banker, a self-made banker. He was raised report, poor, immigrant, you know. But he, uh, he became president of a little bank on the Mississippi River. And uh, he told me, he said, the reason I get up early is so I can get a head start on everybody. <laughs> 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 he was pretty competitive. But, uh, but that's not the reason we get up early. We get up early to spend time because there's something pristine about this time. Now, when I first read this book, it, when it came out in 1972, not by Living Stream, but by CFP, uh, they have a series, <clears throat> I can't remember the name of the series, but we read this chapter on Early Rising. I was living in New Orleans at the time, and I was there in the church for a couple of years by that time, but I was in the church in New Orleans, and I was with uh, Brother Neil Wilson was there with me. He was a student at LSU in, in New Orleans. Anyway, this chapter, I would say, revolutionized my life. Several things have revolutionized my life. The, uh, meeting Christ was a revolutionary experience, Learning to call on the Lord was a revolutionary experience. Learning to pray, read was another dynamic experience. Being baptized was a dynamic experience. And I would say this matter of practicing early rising was a dynamic experience to me. So if we really want to pursue him, you're not going, I got to be honest with you, you're not going to do well if you don't rise early. It's just not going to happen. Sorry. Maybe if you have some, I don't know, terrible disease or something, you can't. Or maybe you work all night, a night shift, something like that. The Lord has his ways. But in generally as a principle, this is all over the Bible. And it's very much clear as a principle and type in Exodus 16. And it's mentioned a lot of places. And if you have not read that chapter, I encourage you to read it. Brother Nee goes so far as to say, the si- and I wish I had this quote with me, but he says, the sickly Christian life is in usually due to nothing more serious than the failure to rise early in the morning. And you may think it's due to this or that sin and and sin all a lot of bad things that mess us up. But actually a lot of these things can be worked out just by rising early. Uh, You'll be surprised. So Mary got up early It was still dark. She came she saw the stone was taken away. Now when Christ when they put the Lord in there they put a stone there. And uh, why was the stone taken away? I mean, he resurrected. He didn't need to move the stone, but it was obviously so that the disciples could see that he was gone. So I'm sure it was removed for that reason. So she saw the stone was taken away, and so she ran back, and she got Peter, and she said they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and I don't know where they've laid him. So as you'll see in this portion, she talked about him a lot because she's very, very focused on Christ. At this point, he's dead in her mind, but she's still Loves him and she wants to be even to take care of his body. She didn't, I guess, know about resurrection yet, but she really loved him and so she wanted to be there. So Peter goes there and John goes with him and they enter into the tomb. They see the linen clothes in verse 6 there and they see the handkerchief that was on his face and the handkerchief was folded, set, set apart. So they saw the clothing and bef- the fact that it was folded, the fact that it was neat. The fact that there was, it was even a separation of where they were gave them an indication that the Lord had been, had resurrected and not just been stolen because this wasn't a pile of clothes or something like that. They knew the Lord. They knew the kind of person he was. They knew this was his character because they lived with him. So the handkerchief of the party was folded and so forth. It wasn't just like a pile of clothes that somebody threw off and took off. Uh, so then... Uh, uh, they didn't know about resurrection yet. And then they left. Peter and John left. They go back home. So they understood that he, you know, apparently had been resurrected. They weren't entirely clear. But Mary didn't leave. She stayed there. And they, still there was a thought maybe he been, his body had been stolen. But Mary was outside the tomb. Verse 11, she was weeping. And then she sees two angels. And then she says, uh, They've taken my Lord away. And then she says, why are you weeping? She says, they have taken my Lord away. And then Jesus is there. And she didn't know it was him. And he's crying. And then Jesus in verse 15 says, why are you weeping? And who are you seeking? And uh, she thought it was a gardener. And she said, "Uh, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where he is. And uh, we have laid him. And then Jesus says, Mary, he speaks her name. And then based on his calling her name she understood it was him and she says rabbi but he says don't touch me because he had not yet ascended this is a big theological point we don't want to get into but the Lord actually had two ascensions he had a kind of a secret ascension to the father and then he had a public ascension and uh, he had not yet secretly ascended to the father we don't need to go there. It's not our topic. But uh, <coughs> anyway she goes back and she said I've seen the Lord. The point is of this story is that this is a person who loves him and seeks him and wants to be with him. Amen. And this is we need to have this attitude. We we get up in the morning to be with him to Amen. to spend time with him because we love him. It's not just enough that we know we're saved. We, we enjoy being with him. This is to pursue him. OK then she says we pursue him also by counting all things lost on account of the excellent knowledge of Christ. So here you have two verses in Philippians 7 and 8. But what things were gains to me, these I've counted lost on account of Christ. Moreover, I also count all things to be lost on account of the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, on account of whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuse that I may gain Christ. So there's a lot here, but the word account is used three times and the word count, I think, is used one once or twice. So Paul was uh, doing a little math here. He was accounting and he was counting. And Paul said that what things were gains to me now the context of these verses tell us some of what was gained to Paul and it really wasn't with Paul material things he was not into material things even before he got saved but he had a pedigree he had a background he was a from the tribe of Benjamin he was a Hebrew, born of two Hebrew parents. He was a Pharisee. He had studied under Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So what was his world was the religious world. So that's why he says, the things gains to me. The Lord is personal. We're different, you know, in the things that we love or things that may even become idols to us, the things that may occupy us, the things that may preoccupy us. They're, they're much related to who we are and our background and things like this. So that's why the things that were gained to me, to me is an important two words. The Lord personalizes. He may let another brother or sister do something that for you, he would restrict you from doing. And that's, he has that, that right to do that because he's, he deals with us very personally. And we tend to think it's a big clump, but his, per, his dealings are personal. Now, God, and you know, this is again spoken of in nature. You think about this. Every eye is unique. That's why they can do scans now. Every eye is unique. Every fingerprint is unique. Not only that, every snowflake, they say, is unique. Now, that's the mind blower there. (laughs) Every snowflake? (laughs) How many snowflakes have there been in this world? And every one is unique. I mean, to me, they all look alike. But, of course, to me, you know, fingerprints all look alike, too. But God is very, uh, he created us very uniquely. And he wants a personal relationship with each of his children. Just like a mother or father, they have, if you have four or five children, you have a relationship with each of your children. And those children are going to be different, right? You have kids, you know your kids are not all the same. I have three boys, they're different. Three different kids. And I have two brothers, well one's gone to be with the Lord now, but I had two brothers and we were, the three of us guys were different. So God deals with us personally. And uh, so don't, so it's not all the same. One size does not fit all. So even in his dealing with us, that's why Paul says things were gains to me. He was really into this world of religion. To me, it's nothing a world of religion. Who cares? I'm not interested in that. I mean, I don't have any concern about that. And some people are into sports. And some people are into, I was into politics. And some people are into fashion. And some people are into this. And some people are into that. And... uh, and these may be okay to be, you know, some of these things are okay. But if, this, if our heart is gained, it can become, as John says in his writings, it can become an idol. Now, in the children of Israel, the children of Israel, if you read the Old Testament, they always had this tendency to idols. They would go back to idols. You don't see much of that now among the children of Israel, but the idols are still around, but they're now, of course, in the East, you know, in, in China, maybe in Taiwan, India, and places like this, Thailand, there are stone idols, but we don't have a lot of stone idols in the West. But still, I think John is the one who says guard yourself against idols. And the idols can be idols of the heart because an idol is something you love or maybe you fear or you serve, or has a power over you. These are the kinds of things that identify an idol. And things can come into our heart. There's a great verse in Proverbs. It says, guard your heart above all that you guard. The heart, the human heart is very fickle. The human heart is very fickle. And we have to be careful because idols come into our life. They just blow in loves and things like if the Lord is very jealous you know he mentions in the Ten Commandments that we're to love him and uh, he mentions love a lot of times uh, <clears throat> so uh, he's personal in the things that he may touch in our life and that we may have to deal with and then Paul goes on to say I count all things to be lost on account of the excellency of the knowledge and this is a little different than the, on account of Christ. On account of Christ, it's just on account of Him. But on account of the excellency of the knowledge of Christ means that we are in this pursuit to know Christ. To know Him more. To live in Him. To walk in Him. To pursue Him. To be in the song of songs. And so we consider the knowledge of Christ also to be an excellent thing. And for this we have suffered the loss of many things. And... Paul says we count them as refuse. In other words, we don't think they're that great anymore. Maybe at one time they were great, but now in the light of Christ we see, wow, this really was not, it's not that great. It was pretty much dog food. So we're not, we can't really boast that much because we see that it's really not worth that much. So Paul did a counting and he counted. Now I'll tell you. A st- I think maybe I may have told you all this story before, but this is a true story because I was not raised in a Christian family. But uh, so we didn't talk about God or the Bible. But my brother, he st- I got two brothers. One's gone, and the other one's still alive. And he's a doctor, and he's. Uh, <clears throat> but when he went to his undergraduate, he was a math major. He loved math. In fact, I took him to Russia not long ago, and he wanted to see. You know, we were in St. Petersburg. They have these tombs of all these people. And he was really interested in the mathematicians. There's a guy named Euler. He wanted to see his tomb. And uh, cause he still <laughs> loves math. And he told me, he said, you know, I think I, sh- I should have been a, a math professor. <laughs> you know, at the end of his career, he says that. <laughs> and so anyway, but he told me one time when he was two years ahead of me in college and I was with him, and uh, I didn't care about math much, but he showed me a formula. And this formula, I call it the Gentile Gospel. <laughs> this, was the, this was the Gentile Gospel. And the formula was well, I'll do it, I'll put it on the board here. The formula was in being any real number. So as high as you want to go, it's just any real number. Zillions and zillions and tr- trillions and billions to the billions and zillions but it has to be a real number (coughs) over infinity so this is a formula what is it well it's you know it's a little debated among mathematicians but basically it's zero it's infinitely close to zero they could say that it's infinitely close to zero such that it only be described as zero. so he showed me this formula I don't know why we were on this subject but we used to talk this way sometimes and uh, about things (coughs) And so I've never forgot this. I never forgot this formula. Because as I was in my last year before I became a Christian, it was the last year from the summer of 1969 until the summer of 1970. I got saved in May of 70. But from the beginning, from July of 1969, things began to happen. Things began to happen in my life that were speeding up this process of getting saved. And a lot of things happened to cause me to consider Christ, to think about Christ, to think about eternity, Think about life, think about my values. All these things begin to happen. And of course, people were praying for me, and I, I attribute these things to their prayers. Because according to John 16, when the Spirit comes, He convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So, based on their prayers, the Spirit was brooding over me, sweeping in me, enlightening me, which is in Luke 15, that second parable. Uh, And I began to be enlightened to not sin. You know, it may sound funny, but I just didn't have much consciousness of sin. Not that I was not a sinner, I was. But mainly with me, it was vanity. It was vanity more than sin. Although I was beginning to be more conscious of my selfishness and my being egotistical. That's sin. But this formula worked on me also because I was a very ambitious person, but... Uh, I've had to deal with this. And I had to deal with that. And I had to deal with that. And so, what about eternity? And so what if that's a big one? You're still going to have to deal with this. And it's still going to wind up this. <laughs> 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 and so uh, right before I got saved <clears throat> in May of 1970, I got saved the end of May during final examinations. And so I had uh, two classes with this Christian friend of mine. His brother is one of the elders in the church in Baton Rouge now. But he was this, his brother was just coming in the church in Houston. Fred Koch, some of you know him. His brother was my classmate, a friend of mine. A dear Christian brother. He never really came in the church, kind of went in and went out, but he's a good guy, and I see him, and he's a a brother in the Lord. And uh, he was, you know, he would share things with me sometimes. But he and I, under the Lord's total sovereignty, had two classes that semester. One was philosophy with five students, an honors class given by the chairman of the department, and the other one was a constitutional law course, undergraduate, we weren't in law school, but it was constitutional law to study cases of the Supreme Court and principles. And so in the first class, uh, the philosophy class, I had, uh, we'd been reading, just five students, and we have been reading these writers, these <coughs> existentialist writers, this is a kind of a philosophy where there's no God, there's no values, there's no, I mean, it's, it's a terrible philosophy. But it was the only one that made sense to me. Because I thought this makes sense. No God, no values, no nothing. Okay, I found my philosophy. <laughs> the problem is you can't live with that philosophy. <laughs> you have to either kill yourself or do something. So, uh, but it made sense. And so I was, but I was still involved in politics. I was really, really involved in politics. And i gotten elected to this office on the campus. <coughs> and so, I write my paper after the... So all we had to do was write a paper. We just were there talking and reading. It was a great class. One of the kinds I like, you know, where you really don't learn much. <laughs> but uh, you're just, you just, you just j- jabbing a lot, you know. <laughs> like you know, engineering, I never... I couldn't have made it through that, I'm sure. <laughs> but, uh, so anyway, I write my paper, and my paper is basically just a, a regurgitation of the hopelessness of the existential philosophers that I've been reading hopeless. So I say in the paper, you know, I just got elected to this or that and still it doesn't really matter because I'll be dead in 50 years, 60 years. And it won't matter really if I die tomorrow or die then because over eternity of time is all the same. I'm just kind of regurgitating this stuff. And the professor was kind of, oh, he was like, oh boy, (laughs) he's buying into this. So after I read my paper, the professor was a little bit shaken and he said, uh, well, 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 don't, don't be too extreme here now. Um, the, and then he said, the meaning of life is to search for the meaning of life. <laughs> and so I had a vision of a squirrel in a cage going around and around and around. <laughs> and so my friend was very touched by my Christian friend was very touched because he had not really preached the gospel to me much. And we were pretty good friends, so he felt convicted by the Lord. So he reworked his paper. We ran out of time. He had to read the next week. He reworked his paper and presented a kind of a philosophical response to this. And I don't want to go there too much, but it was very, very, very interesting. And it really captivated me. Because he, what he said made a lot of sense. Well, I'll just tell you real quick. He, drew, he went to the board. He drew two domes. And he said, Life is about not what you do, but where you live. You can live in this realm, or this sphere, and this is called, I think he named it different things, human effort, the law, um, like that, And he said, so whatever you do of your human effort based on the law, he says, you're going to have the experience of emptiness and vanity and futility and hopelessness. And he just says, it's not what you do. It's if you are in this realm, this is what you're going to experience. And I know he put law in there. And I know he put human effort in there. Then he said, but there's another realm <coughs> that you can live in. And this realm is called grace. And this realm is Christ. And in this, and this, in this realm, was going to be darkness, I think, and death. And he says, in this realm, there is uh, light and there's love and there's freedom. Because this one, I remember he put bondage in there. This one's got freedom and this has peace. All these things. And he says, it's not a matter of what you do. It's a matter of where you are. And that was very, he did it in a very philosophical way. And I was like, wow, I was really impressed. And after class, I shook his hand, I was a big handshaker, you know. (laughs) And I shook his hand, and I said, Johnny, that was great. That was great, he was surprised, because he knew I was an atheist. I said, that was great, I'd love to talk more with you about this. And he was like, wow, okay. So on the Lord's sovereignty, we had this second class together and we're studying for this final examination just maybe three or four days later. And we we were going to study all night until the morning and take the test at eight. But we got to talking past midnight about things, constitutional law and justice. I remember we got into this matter of justice and righteousness versus mercy and compassion. And so this was a big dichotomy because in a just and righteous society, very strict, righteous, just, nobody's going to make it. Then if you're too loosey-goosey with everybody's compassionate, merciful, then that's also a mess. So how do you reconcile compassion, mercy, love, kindness with justice and righteousness and all this stuff? These to us were like, there's no way you can't do both. How do you do it. And so we're talking about this and and we were into this kind of stuff. And uh, somehow I would say under the full anointing of the Holy Spirit. He just began to share about and I cannot remember to tell you the truth but about how these come together in Christ. They only intersect in Christ. That justice. Righteousness versus compassion, mercy, kindness, forgiveness, they come together only in Christ. Otherwise, they'll never come together. Whatever he said, that began to click in me. Click, 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 click. Like Brother Lee said, I'm taking pictures. I'm shooting pictures of what he's saying. And it's Christ, 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 Christ. It was a very interesting night. I don't know what time, but it was like two, maybe in the morning. And uh, there were two other guys there. One was a Christian. One was an unbeliever. And they were just listening. And I was just listening. Johnny was just going. I mean, he was just, and he's a talker. But he was going. (laughs) He's a lawyer today. But uh, he uh, was really under the anointing of the Spirit. And I did not say a word. He didn't ask me to pray. And I didn't pray. I just listened. And as I listened, the eyes of my heart began to be enlightened. And I just began to see Christ and appreciate Christ and believe in Christ and know that Christ is the answer. I don't even know how much he understood what was happening in me. Because, again, this is a very strange night. This is before the days of cell phones. So about 2 in the morning, the phone rings in this place I was living by campus. Johnny was over studying at my place. His mother finds out he's over there. His dad had had a heart attack. He had to rush to the hospital. And uh, so he and this other Christian guy have to leave. And I'm just watching everything. I'm watching because he, he gets the phone call and he's talking to his mother. And he, then he tells us what happened. And then he starts calling a few of his Christian friends. I didn't know, you know, his Christian friends, but he starts calling them, waking them up and saying, my dad had a heart attack. Can you, s-? I remember he said, can you start sending them up for my dad? That's what he said. <laughs> sending them up, which means praying, right? I didn't know the Christian vocabulary, but I could figure that out, what he was saying. And I just was watching, and yet he was peaceful. And I had gone through a death in my family, of my father years before, and it was without Christ. And it was so different. Death outside of Christ is incredibly tragic and dark. Death in Christ is a whole nother ball of wax. It's sad, but it's still another ball of wax. And I'm watching this, observing it. He and the Christian guy go. And I'm left with the other guy, the unbeliever. And uh, he had heard everything I heard. But he was completely untouched by the whole thing. And so uh, he said to me, what's going on? We're talking about religion and then all of a sudden this phone call, what's going on here? And then I said, his name was Chuck. I said, Chuck, I can't believe it, but I have become a Christian. Wow. That's my, I know my word. I know exactly what I said. I can't believe it. I couldn't believe it. But I become a Christian. And then Chuck, who is an atheist, just like I was, says, when did you become a Christian? (laughs) And I said, just now, tonight. And then I proceeded to explain to him, based on whatever I had seen that night, I don't remember, but I do remember for sure that I shared with him whatever it was that I had realized And then we talked until the sun came up. So that's, it was May, so maybe it was coming up around 5.30 or something. But anyway, we talked for quite a while until the sun came up. And we all had the same test. And Chuck said, well, I've got to go. I'm going to get something to eat. I'm going to take a test. And I said, well, I'm not prepared. I can't take a test. But I know the teacher. I know he'll let me take it at the end of the summer school. So I'm going to just trust that's going to happen. And I'm not going to take it. (coughs) Because Johnny wasn't going to take it. I was going to tell him that I was with Johnny and all this. So anyway, I go uh, go to uh, bed about six or seven. And I remember lying in the bed. And I was about to go to sleep. I was real tired. But there was a, it's really funny. I was so peaceful. I just was so peaceful. I hadn't experienced such peace in my life probably ever before. And I would say joyful inwardly, but not necessarily outwardly, but I was joyfully. But all of a sudden, it's like a little dark cloud came over my head. You know, you've seen uh, Peanuts, the dark cloud comes over the head. So the dark cloud is over my head, and I'm trying to think, why? Why am I worried? What is going on? Why am I peaceful now? And I'm trying to analyze what's going on. And then I was able to figure myself out. And what I was worried about was this. (coughs) When I wake up, Will I still believe? And I was worried that I would wake up and be the way I was before. That It was all a passing thing (coughs) of the the night. Of studying too late, drinking too much coffee or something like this. And I'm thinking, oh boy. Uh, Okay. So I went on to bed. And then about 11 or 11.30 that morning, knocking on my door. So I wake up. And the first thing I did was to check with myself. Do you still believe? And I just, yeah, I do. <laughs> I still, I believe. I've seen it. I've seen it. I said that many times. I've seen it. It. I don't know what it is, but I've seen it. And uh, then the door was Johnny. His father had died that night. <clears throat> Passed away that night. Anyway, so, uh, I don't know why I'm on this. The excellency of the knowledge of Christ. The math, the math, the math, yes. So (laughs) what the beginning of my gospel was the Gentile gospel right here. The Gentile gospel. I mentioned this to my brother before. He, my brother, is now saved. I led him to the Lord after many, many years. of. He's a tough nut, let me tell you. He's a tough nut. But anyway, I led him to the Lord. And uh, but before I laid him to the Lord, I would tell him. I said, Alan, you're the one that told me this. He said, oh, well, you know, uh, uh, yeah, maybe that's infinitely close. He was trying to, like, w- waffle out of this thing. <laughs> I said, you, you, you told me this. You led me on this path I'm on. <laughs> anyway, okay. So... Uh, but anyway, God deals with very personally. You just think about every eye, iris or whatever is unique. Every fingerprint, every snowflake. So God deals with you personally about things, about matters, about persons, about idols, about things that occupy us and possess us. Okay, then D says, by laying hold of Christ, forgetting and stretching, uh, not that I've already obtained or I'm already perfected, but I pursue. So again, This matter of pursuing Christ is very much in the scriptures. Most Christians have no concept that they should pursue Christ. But Paul is 25 years in Christ and he said, I pursue. So he was in the Song of Songs. He was pursuing. And then he says, I do not account of myself to have lain, so forth. Then verse 14, I pursue toward the goal for the prize. Now here we have introduce something, and that is a prize. And again, this is not well known among believers. How do they interpret this? I do not know. Salvation is not a prize. Salvation is a gift. A free gift, which God gives freely to whoever, whosoever will. But there is a prize in the Christian life, and the prize is the thousand year millennial kingdom. Which is developed in uh, the Book of Revelation and other places, but Paul was pursuing both the goal of knowing Christ and enjoying Christ and being satisfied with Christ, because really He's the only thing that really satisfies us. But also, he knowing that there was a prize ahead, so this is an incentive that we all have. Okay, now we continue on uh, the issue and experience uh, of gaining experience in Christ. Uh, these all kind of flow together. It could be just one title really the issue of gaining experience in Christ a personal affectionate intimate and satisfied life that's under message two, and here you have the song of songs which we've already talked about but I just want to call your attention to these first four verses the song of songs which is Solomon's let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine so this tells us that Solomon Considered the real song of songs, the real joy, the real meaning, the real satisfaction in life is to pursue God. And to have an intimate and affectionate and personal and private relationship with Him. Now we say affectionate, obviously it's affection if you kiss. And this is the kisses of the mouth, so it's the kisses on the lip. It's not just a little peck on the cheek it's a kiss on the lips so it's very affectionate and it's related to love your love is better than wine so this tells us that the real satisfaction in the human life is going to be related to developing to pursuing and developing a personal affectionate relationship with god and of course god is christ and then he says draw me and we will run after you so again draw me that's personal So this book, Song of Songs, is about the personal relationship of the believers with Christ. Even though there is a collective aspect of the church, which is important, and true, Christ did die for the church and gave himself up for her, he also loves each one of us in a very intimate, personal, and affectionate manner. And he knows us, and he loves us, and he cares for us. And he's not satisfied that we would not have such a personal relationship with him. And as Brother Lee told us in the crystallization study of uh, of Song of Song, he said in this matter of a personal and affectionate relationship with Christ, no one can represent you. You cannot be democratic and send a representative on your behalf. God wants it with you, just like a mother wants such a relationship with each of her children. She wants some personal relationship relationship with each child God wants it with each of his children as well draw me and then he says and we Now, what that means is the drawing is of us but it will affect people around us and this is true you get affected if you begin cultivating this kind of relationship with Christ personal and affectionate private and spiritual and he's drawing you it will impact others around you you don't have to go on a campaign it will impact others around you. Draw me, and we will run after you. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. And the king brought me into his chambers, which indicates private. <coughs> there's a public aspect to our Christian life, or a corporate aspect, and there's a private aspect, and you need both. One time Brother Lee told us there are only two ways to enjoy the Lord. Okay, Enoch, what are the two ways to enjoy the Lord? <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, if you, usually when you ask people that, they say, uh, pray reading and calling <laughs> or singing. But the, only the two ways are private and corporate. We do enjoy the Lord with others, but there's also a private aspect and you, sh- you cannot forsake either. You need to enjoy him privately. You need to enjoy him with the saints. <clears throat> okay. Okay, then concerning gaining experience in Christ, we need not only a personal, affectionate, intimate, satisfied life with Christ, which is uh, a life of love, but we also need a growing life. We're going to move through these pretty fast. As newborn babes long for the guileless milk of the Word, you cannot grow in your Christian life if you're not a person in the Bible. You must read the Bible. If you don't, you will not grow. You will not grow. You're not going to lose your salvation, but you're not going to grow. The Bible is the, f- is the milk, the guileless milk of the word. The Bible will affect you. It will renew you. It will nourish you. And then Paul says, or Peter says, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, which indicates that there should be not just a mental experience, but some kind of tasting, some kind of inward thing that he describes as tasting. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Yes, I think many of us can say, I have tasted that the Lord is good. And how do you define it? I don't know how to define it. I don't know how to describe it. But I have tasted the Lord and you have tasted the Lord. And this is why for to me when I learned to call on the Lord and pray read, that was another deeper way to taste him. But it's not the only way. We can taste the Lord in a lot of ways. And we need to pray, Lord, expand my boundaries, expand my borders. I want to enjoy you even if I have to keep my mouth shut like watch my knee. I'm not promoting that. But the point is, we need to learn to eat him and taste him in a lot of ways. But you will not make a normal Christian growth if you don't read the Bible. So it's very good to have a plan. You know, like the brothers in Austin have some plans that they pass out. and We have... Something based on that in Oklahoma City. To help the saints read. One chapter of the old, one chapter of the new, or whatever. It can be different plans. It doesn't have to all be the same plan. But there needs to be a reading of the Bible. You will not make progress. Then, number two, we need an attitude of pursuing growth. And there it says, holding the head out from whom all the body, being richly supplied, knit together, grows uh, by means of joints and marrows, our joints and sinews grows with the growth of God. And this is the only time this phrase is used. The growth of God. What does it mean? The growth of God. Does God grow? Is God growing? Well, no, you can't say God is growing. So how do you interpret that? Well, King James has an alternate translation. And they say grows with the increase of God. And I think this helps you understand. The growth of God is the increase of God in you. It's the growth of God in you. He's not growing in himself, but he does grow in you because Paul likens Christians, us, to a farm. And a farm is about growth. And the Lord likens the kingdom to sowing seeds. And they are planted in the human heart and they grow. And then there are things that fight against them like rocks. And like thorns and thistles and hardness and things like this. these are, This is a condition of the human heart. Our heart is really a mess. It's fickled and it's incurably evil and it changes overnight. And we love today, we hate tomorrow. The heart is really uh, a difficult thing to deal with. And uh, you know, Brother Nee has an illustration about the heart in Matthew chapter 6. And that illustration is... In Matthew 6, the Lord says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Okay, so he says, his illustration is, if you have a feather, and you have a rock, and you tie the feather to the rock, and you go up high enough, if you drop them, then the rock is going to take the lead, and the feather will follow, because that's just the law of the way it works in gravity. So your heart is very fickled, like a feather, but your Treasure actually helps you to have your heart tied into God. Because if you give, and I'm not here on a campaign, but I'm just telling you, if you give, your heart is going to follow your treasure. Very interesting, huh? You think, well, my treasure should follow my heart, right? I should love the Lord, love the church, love the gospel. Then, Because my heart is that way, then I'll give. But, Paul, but Jesus says, no, you give and your heart's going to follow your treasure. And another interesting point, because the heart is so fickle, in Romans chapter 10, Paul says, <clears throat> I think it's in verse 9, he says, if you believe, uh, sorry, sorry, he says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Now he doesn't say, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. He says it's if you confess with your mouth, and then he adds, believing with your heart. It's somewhat parallel. The heart is so fickle. The mouth can also be a help. Speaking, praying, calling can actually hook your heart and bring it forward. And you think of how many people have come to the Lord, and yet even when they are praying, they still have doubts in their heart. They're not sure. If you were to say, now, Christy, you really believe Uh, no, I'm not sure I really do. (laughs) Don't ever ask him that. You say, okay, (laughs) you just pray with me. (laughs) And then this guy prays and his heart will be kind of brought along. It's a mystery. Salvation is a very mysterious thing. It's all kind of angles to it, which I'm not a, don't know everything. But in principle, the heart will also follow the mouth. And even in our Christian life, We speak things and sometimes just rejoicing and thanking and praising. Even we don't feel like it. Don't just go by your feelings. I don't feel like praising the Lord. I don't feel like saying thank you, Lord. Yeah, that's right. Because your heart's a mess. (laughs) So you just speak it. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. You know, Paul says rejoice in the Lord always and everything give thanks your heart will be affected Amen. positively. Amen. So, uh, so grow with the growth of God. God, Now, the beginning of that verse says, holding the head, and I would just point this out. Every one of us is connected to Christ as our head. You have to hold onto Christ as your head. No one can substitute for Christ as your head. You have to hold the head. You have to have a personal relationship with Christ as your head. Okay, I'll leave you with that. Okay, number three. We grow by the Spirit spreading from our spirit into our mind, emotion, and will. I think that's self explanatory. See, a together life for where two or three are gathered in my name. Okay, I would just say this. We need companions in our Christian life. The the way to enjoy the Lord is both privately and with others. If you don't have others, you're going to also be in a deficit. You need other saints, and the Lord makes it very simple. He says two or three. Two or three. Of course, this doesn't mean they can't be more than two or three, but it means at least you need two or three. At least you need some companions, some people that you can talk to, that you can pray with, that you can fellowship with. You need some people. And that's a gathering of two or three. And this can, doesn't have to just happen at night, in a home, any kind of formal home meeting. Of course, that's fine too. But it also can happen during the day. It can happen at work. It can happen in school. It can happen on campus. It can happen uh, all kinds of places. But we need others. You have to have others. That's a together life. Then a testifying life. We are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Uh, We need a life that testifies to the Lord. And uh, salt of the earth. The earth is full of contamination and corruptness and pollution and bad things. But there is salt in the earth. And the salt kind of limits the corruption. In the old days, salt was used in lieu of refrigeration. You didn't refrigerate food. You had to salt things down. And sometimes I remember, probably Chris remembers, I would sometimes, I used to go to Russia sometimes to help over there, and they would be selling little fish. that were salted salted down because they didn't have refrigeration on the streets, and you just buy a real salty fish and eat it, you know, there's a small little fish. And uh, so salt kills corruption. And of course, the salty one is not us. The salty one is Christ. Uh, he's sweet, but he's also salty. And if you're full of Christ, you, you will be full of a little element of salt. You don't have to try to be salty. Don't do that. Don't try to be anything. <laughs> you know, uh, but just be full of Christ and there will spontaneously be some salt that will kill corruption. And it's amazing. I mean, you just are full of Christ. You're not trying to do anything. You're not trying to be anybody. You're not, certainly not trying to be religious. And yet, People even around you may just not curse quite as much. They may not tell as many off-color jokes. Or they may say, okay, come come over here, will you? They'll they'll leave you and tell the joke over there. Uh, This is a kind of an element of killing. And then we're the light of the world. This world is also in great, great darkness. And we are light, not by trying to be light, but by being full of light and being full of God because God is light. And this is a part of our testifying. It's not really what we do. It's what we are. Then we magnify Christ through our living. We talked about that already. A magnification of Christ. Uh, Yeah. That means that our living makes Christ larger. Because people don't think much of Christ. They don't think about him. They think he's a religious figure. He's a religious character. Doesn't really pertain to me. But if they see a person living Christ or a person that's speaking of Christ in a living way, this causes Christ to be a little larger to them. Now, I got a, in that one year before my salvation, a couple of events happened that made Christ larger to me. One happened in December, of '69, I got saved in May of '71. Happened in April of or May, early May, early May of '70. The one that happened, is, and again, I had very little regard for Christ. I didn't think about him. I didn't. I wasn't religious. I didn't. I thought he was a historical figure, but I really wasn't sure much of what else. So I knew a few Christians, and one of them, this girl, sends me a Christmas card. I was living alone. I had a house I was living in by the campus. And uh, she sends me a Christmas card. And uh, now remember, this is 1969, so we're in the throes. Some of you are older, so you can relate to this. This is in the throes of the whole radical, you know, all that stuff going on, hippies and uh, movements and political this and political that. So it was very much into all this kind of stuff. And I was pretty much into that kind of stuff as well. And uh, so she sent me a, a Christmas card, and it, it was a little unusual, though. It didn't have, like, on the front, you know, a reindeer or something like that. Uh, it, had, uh, it had some words. And so I opened the thing up, and before I opened the card up, on the outside of it, it said, listen, it said, he was, a revolutionary he was a nonconformist he was a radical he challenged the establishment he rebuked the hypocrites he wasn't into material things I'm looking at this <laughs> <laughs> I, got, I got a new hero who here is this guy <laughs> This is probably Che Guevara. Maybe <laughs> You know Che Guevara was he's a very romantic figure to the communist because he was a born into a wealthy family in Argentina wealthy family became a doctor And he gave everything up to fight for the communist and when he helped Castro take over Cuba Castro offered him a position in the government He said no there are more revolutions to He went to Bolivia where the CIA assassinated him. Anyway, (laughs) but uh, so I was reading that and I was thinking, wow, who is this? Who is this guy? Who is this guy? I didn't think about it being a Christmas card. And then I opened it up and it said, and you shall call his name Jesus. (laughs) I wish I'd kept that card, (laughs) but I didn't. But anyway, I thought, this, Thought, wow, this is very interesting. I never thought about Jesus. I thought he was just a religious guy, you know, just a religious, like a priest or something. I never thought of him being <laughs> challenging the establishment, <laughs> nonconformist, and <laughs> not into material things. These are all the things you know I was thinking were really great, <laughs> and so, uh, but I began to think more about Christ. Okay, then the second thing that caused me for Christ to be magnified a little bit to me, to be considered Christ, was then we had. Uh, this, this event happened in May of 1970 and these kids were killed in Kent State University. Four kids were killed on the campus there. Yeah, they were in a protest, May 4th of ni- May of 1970, early. And so there's different kind of protests that broke out on different campuses around America in support of these students. Because we were down in Louisiana, pretty conservative down there, but still there, there was a kind of a rally and Protest, there was a march. <coughs> I was involved. I was, you know, a knucklehead, didn't know much. But anyway, uh, the television station, local television station, wanted to have a panel interview with two students and two faculty members about this problem. Since I was involved with the student government, they asked me and this other girl, that's the girl, so me and a girl, we were uh, the two students. And then there was this ag professor who was very conservative, and there was this Jewish guy who was an English professor, and his name was Herb Rothschild. And uh, he was very popular. He taught Shakespeare, and, and he was really popular. He was smart, bright, went to Harvard, got a PhD at Harvard. So the panel was these two professors and these two students. And so they were talking about different protests and all this stuff and I was just, you know, full of nonsense. But uh, they ask Dr. Rothschild something. And Dr. Rothschild, little did I know that Herb Rothschild had, even though he was quite liberal in some ways, he had actually gotten born again when he was a PhD student in Harvard. And he was a Jew. He didn't talk about it much. He didn't talk about it much, but anyway, we're on this panel, and Dr. Rothschild, who's really popular with the students, made a comment that I never forgot. He said, you know, I agree with a lot of the things these students are saying. I agree with a lot of the things these students are saying. They have some very good Ideas and I think they they're complaining about some things that need to be complained about said I only have one problem The problem is I don't see that they are living the way they're talking I Don't see that they they're living matches their verbiage and I knew this was true. I knew that these people were just talking everybody was complaining and talking but nobody was living way they wanted everybody else to live and when he said that of course I liked him I liked his, I had a couple classes from him and I was oh no way I didn't finish the story then he said according to my understanding of history there's only one person that ever lived the way he talked and that was Jesus Christ wow. he said that on the television wow. and I am listening to Dr. Rothschild, did not know he was a Christian, but had a lot of respect for him, liked his lectures, liked his, he's funny, and everything. And I'm just like, I was shocked. And then I remember I said, I hit my hand on the table. And I said, I agree with Dr. Rothschild. <laughs> and then I said, Jesus, he really lived the way he talked. I, didn't, I had not read one ounce of the gospel. <laughs> But I just kind of had a hunch it was probably true. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my friends, I had some of my Christian friends watching this TV show. They were just shocked. Like, "What? what? Is he becoming a Christian? No, I didn't become a Christian yet. But this was the part of the magnification of Christ. I began to think, wow, he actually lived the words he spoke. Nobody's doing that now. Just a bunch of protesters. They all just want to protest, but they don't live anyway. (laughs) They just complain. (laughs) So anyway, that was part of the magnifying of Christ. Okay, then shepherding others for the Lord's increase. The point there being that what will really make our Christian life meaningful and happy is if we are caring for others. Again, you learn a lot about about God through human nature. Because we're in the image of God. We're God's kind. We're his species. Humans have a desire to have offspring, to have children. Humans want to have children. This is something God put into us because he needs the earth to be filled. So he put this into our nature. Of course, some people can't have children. That's you know arranged by the Lord in his own sovereignty. But m- most people want children, even though children cause you pain, they cause you suffering, they cause you money, all kind of other things. Still, you want children. That's just human nature. And uh, we in the spiritual realm, actually, we also need children. We need people to love. Children, we can love them. We can care for them. And we are, in, we are uh, satisfied to have these objects of our love. And to be loved, of course, too. But there is a spiritual dynamic. God wants children. And God, and we as children of God, we want spiritual children and we're, we're going to miss something if we don't have some. So all of us should pray for people to shepherd. They can be unbelievers. They can be new Christians. They can be whatever, backsliders, different people. The, Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So the greatest blessings are not receiving but giving. Which means the happiest persons are those who give. you give. You're happier when you give than when you receive. I know we don't, we don't think that, but it's true. You're happier. This is why the most joyful person in the universe is God. Because he is the biggest giver in the universe. And we are happy when we're caring for others, shepherding others, bringing people to Christ, or at least shepherding new ones, backsliders. We're just not wrapped up with our own affairs. It's miserable. It's miserable. Just to be completely turned in on yourself. It's miserable. So this is to shepherd others for the Lord's increase. And we're appointed for this. And he wants us to go forth and bear fruit. You know, two chapters in Genesis are significant. Chapter 4 and chapter 5. And they're a great contrast. In chapter 4, you have human industry. You have the invention of commerce. You have the invention of weapons of defense. You have polygamy. You have murder. You have all the things that are on the earth today. Commerce, weapons, wars, murders, polygamy. Very active, 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 making a mess of the earth. Genesis 4. Then you have Genesis 5. It seems nothing happened in Genesis 5. But that's not true. Something does happen in Genesis 5. You have the genealogy of the living. Genesis 4 is the genealogy of the dead. Genesis 5 is the genealogy of the living. You have all of these people and God's of, coming of, of God's people. And it doesn't say one thing about what they did. Other than they lived, they had children, they lived, they had more children. And they died <laughs> so they're propagating they're propagating God told Adam fill the earth fill the earth so we uh, of course you know we all have to work and things like that we're not suggesting that but we will be happy when we propagate when we care for others Amen. new ones young ones this is to make your life joyful okay then the application of Christ seeing and maintaining a clear okay uh, I'll just do one point here and then stop. Seeing and maintaining a clear vision of God's eternal purpose. We need to be governed by this vision. And that is a vision of God's purpose. And I would add to that a vision of God's economy to work out his purpose. Um, In verse 10, Paul talks about the multifarious wisdom of God being made known through the church. The multifarious wisdom of God is, is, I love this phrase, God's wisdom is incredible, how he works things out. It's multifarious, how the connections, and this person, that person, you're born here, you moved there, your family did this, that happened, and many times we don't understand it. Oh my goodness, many times. There's a Danish philosopher who said, life is only understood looking back on it. But it has to be lived looking forward. In other words, you live it not understanding really everything. It's only when you look back that you understand a little bit. And uh, this is true. And, uh, you know, I one time I was in Holland and I was in, uh, went to the, the house of that woman, that Jewish uh, uh, Christian lady named Corrie Ten Boone, who was put in, uh, you know, the concentration camp. And so we went to her little house. It's kind of like the Anne Frank house in a sense, which is in Amsterdam, but the Core Tin Boon house was where her daddy had a watch shop. And the, st- still to this day, there's a watch shop is there. And it's still called Tin Boon Watch Shop, but it's run by somebody else. But upstairs they have where she lived and where they hid the Jews. They hid a lot of Jews. These were Christians, but they were hiding Jews. Eventually they got somebody told on them, and they got all put in a concentration camp. The daddy died very quickly, he was old. Her sister died in the camp. She made it through because there was some kind of clerical error. After about two years, they let her out mistakenly, and she was, didn't die in the camp. And She made, came to America. She lived in California. But she, anyway, she wrote a book. But uh, she, at the end of the little tour of the house, the little guide said, Now, this is something that Corey Tin Boone used to use as a gospel, uh, I think think they said a gospel technique or something. And it was a crochet thing, you know, one of these, uh, where you're making a pattern, like, you know, maybe. yeah. It had a circle, and then in it you stitch, and you have a picture of something. Okay. Your pattern. Okay, so in, in the front, you look at the pattern, and it's a pretty picture, maybe of trees, and maybe an animal or something like that. If you turn the thing over, you know what it looks like on the backside? All oh, confusing and wires and strings everywhere. This is like a mess. And we have to, that's why we need a vision of God's purpose and God's economy. Because we're living in a time of a lot of chaos. And Brother Lee described it as satanic chaos. But in the midst of satanic chaos, there is a divine dispensing that goes on and it's working out a pattern. A beautiful thing is being worked out and that is the New Jerusalem. But it's like the Grand Canyon. It takes a lot of time involved in that. A lot of time. And the process, it looks a little messy. Sometimes it's almost incomprehensibly messy and hard to understand. Why did this happen? Why did that happen? Seems like things are a mess. When Brotherly shared, that's the last point and then we'll stop, but when Brotherly shared the book of Corinthians with us, a life study, he told us, Corinthians is, he said, the the church in Corinth, he didn't say it was a typical church. No, 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 he he didn't say it was a a model church, he said it was a typical church. Because some people in the Testimonies they were saying, oh, Corinth is a model church. He said, oh, no, I didn't say model church, I said typical church. (laughs) And that is, in a typical church, there is lots of problems. Lots of problems. Over the years, of course, you know, we, as we're around a while, we see problems, and we go through storms, and, and, and even again, back to human life, there's tornadoes. We live in Tornado Alley. There's hurricanes down on the Gulf. There's fires in California. There's earthquakes, all kinds of things that are happening. This is a mess. This world is under the damage of the rebellion of Satan. But there's a divine dispensing that's going on and we have to be clear about this and stay clear and realize the multifarious wisdom of God. And we have to be on guard about something. And that is, and over the years, I've seen some saints stumble over this. They had the thought that the church, since this is God's purpose, was in this age to be some kind of utopia. You know what utopia is? Okay, let me tell you the root, the origin of the word utopia. Two Greek words, U, U, S, and topos. U, S means no, Topus means place. <laughs> <laughs> utopia is no place. And it was written by a Catholic priest named, what's his name, uh, Thomas More. He wrote Utopia. One time when I was in Moscow, I went to the uh, Kremlin, and right outside the Kremlin wall, they have an obelisk. And there they have the great socialist thinkers of all time. Of course, on the top is going to be Lenin. And uh, Karl Marx is right under him. But anyway, they have various socialist thinkers. The bottom... Sir Thomas More, <laughs> the writer of Utopia. <laughs> we are not Utopians. This, on this earth, we're not going to ever live in Utopia. The church is a wonderful place, but it is not Utopia. There will be problems. Everything will be worked out finally. There still needs to be another age of a thousand years. But in the midst of that, We can be under the divine dispensing. And we need to realize that to have a utopian view is actually to have a communist view. (laughs) They're the ones that believe in utopia, not us. We know this is a messy world we live in. But in the midst of this messy world, there's Christ. And there's grace and there's God. And there's all these unseen things that we can experience in an unseen way. So we need a clear view of God's eternal purpose and of God's eternal economy. Okay, why don't you share for 15 minutes and we'll stop.